Preface All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full, said the wisest of the wise. We might add to this and say, All the rivers come out of the sea, yet the sea is not empty. All the good books in the world have, more or less directly, come out of the Bible, yet the Bible is not empty. It is as full now as it was when it was first written. Let's not be afraid of exhausting it. There is only one book that bears such study. Let us be thankful that our world does contain such a book. It must be superhuman, supernatural. Blessed be God that there is at least one thing thoroughly superhuman and supernatural in this world. There is something that stands out from and above the laws of nature, something visible and audible to link us with Him whose face we do not see and whose voice we do not hear. What a void there would be here if this one fragment of the divine, now venerable, both with wisdom and age, were to disappear from our midst. Or, what is the same thing, if the discovery were to be made that this ancient volume is not the unearthly thing that men have deemed it to be, but, at the highest estimate, a mere fragment from the great block of human thought, perhaps, according to another estimate, a mere relic of superstition. Bring the book, said Sir Walter Scott upon his deathbed to Lockhart. What book? asked Lockhart. What book? replied the dying novelist. There is but one book. Yes, there is but one book, and one day we will know it, when that which is human will pass away like the mists from some Lebanon peak, and leave that which is divine to stand out and to shine out alone in its unhidden grandeur. God is recalling humanity to the book, now that was written for it. By the very attacks made on it by enemies, as well as by the studies of its friends, He is bringing us back to this one volume as the light shining in a dark place. He is asking us to take ourselves to it, so that we may know the past, the present, and the future. Let us read it, let us study it, let us love it, let us reverence it. It will guide, it will cheer, it will enlighten, it will make wise, it will purify. It will lead us into all truth. It will deliver us from the fermenting errors of the day. It will save us from the intellectual dreams of a vain philosophy, from the corrupted taste of a sensational literature, from the baseless novelties of spiritual mysticism, from the pretentious sentimentalisms of men who soar above all creeds and abhor the name of law, from broad churchism and high churchism and no churchism. It will lead us into light and love, into liberty and unity imparting strength and gladness. This book is the Word of God. It contains the words of God, and it is the Word of God, the thing that God has spoken to man. Being the Word of God, that which it contains must be the words of God. Each word of God is true, and is as divine as it is true. But are there not various readings? so that at times we are uncertain as to which is the authentic word? Yes, but these cases are few, and doubtful cases do not invalidate those that are not doubtful, the latter of which compose more than nine-tenths of the Bible. The doubtful readings make us far more secure as to all the rest. There are various readings in Homer and Cicero, but the occurrence of these does not prove that the rest are not really the very words of 
Homer, and Cicero. But are there not words of wicked men, indeed even of Satan himself, in the Bible? How can I say that it contains nothing but the words of God? I did not say this. But I say that even the words of the wicked are inserted in it by God for a wise purpose. In interpreting such words, we are to consider what that purpose is, so that taking the passage as a whole, we will extract the truth of God from it, and even discover also how the words of the ungodly are made to illustrate the truth of God. No word is set down in the Bible except by the authority of God. This is our security and joy. But are there not variations of the narratives, as in Kings and Chronicles, as in the Gospels, even as in the very words said to have been spoken at our Lord's baptism? Yes, variations, but not inconsistencies. The Holy Spirit introduced these variations for the purpose of bringing out all the aspects of the scene. These variations from the exact original words are not by chance or without a purpose. The Spirit was the author of the original words, and He is also the author of the variations. Does He not have the right to vary His own words when He sees fit? And when He varies them, should He be accused of inaccuracy? Should the fact of the variation be used as an argument against the verbal inspiration of Scripture, as a proof that the original words were not worth the exact reporting? If the variations were a contradiction, the reasoning would hold good. But since this is not alleged, the accusation falls to pieces. For it is a pure absurdity to deduce from a variation the same conclusions as from a contradiction. It is as arbitrary as it is absurd to deny a writer the liberty of setting his own words in different lights, indeed, even to base upon the fact of his doing so a charge or a suspicion that he never spoke or wrote any such words at all. So long as we can show that we have divine authority for the variations, we don't need to shrink away from acknowledging these, or suppose that the consequences of such an acknowledgment must be a relinquishment of the full inspiration of Scripture. Suppose I am arguing with a friend concerning something that I did and said. Am I not at liberty at one time to cite my original words, and at another time to vary them so as to make a point with them, or add force to my argument? And because I explain myself this way, in varying language, should it be said that I never really used the very words, or that it is of no consequence to know whether the words were really mine, when the very object of the discussion is to get at the original words and their true meaning? Yes, we have divine authority for the variations in the different narratives. Having that, we have divine security for words of Scripture, just as if there had been no variation at all. This becomes all the stronger when it happens, as is admitted in the present case, that the aim of the writer is really to present the varying truth to us, that he can have no object in misrepresenting it or misreporting himself, even that his character is such as to place himself above all suspicion, both in regard to truthfulness and wisdom. I take this book, then, as the one book, the book of God, as truly such as Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, or Hooker's of the Laws of Ecclesiastical Polity, are the books of men. And why men should write books for their fellow man, and God not write one book for his creatures to tell them of himself, I don't understand. 
It seems to me the most natural of all things. The utter silence of God to the creatures that He has made would surely be so unnatural as to be incredible. That God should speak is what we might expect. That He should be mute is beyond all belief. That He should speak in words of His own choosing is what we should desire above all things, for then we would know that His thoughts were really presented to us. That He should speak in words of man's choosing, if such a thing could be, is altogether undesirable and unlikely, for then we wouldn't know whether the language and the thought were in the least coincidental, or even that we should feel that we had gotten an incorrect and untrustworthy volume, that we had been cheated and betrayed, that instead of bread we had gotten a stone, and instead of an egg we had gotten a scorpion. The pages that follow are an attempt to bring out, as briefly as possible, the thoughts of God as contained in the words of His book. It is with light and truth that we must handle that book. The old Latin poet says, Verborum vetus interit aetas, words die of old age. But the divine volume, with its true words, like the light that is its emblem, remains forever perfect and forever young. Edinburgh, November 1867